The issues that matter most, right here. The Drew Mariani Show. On Relevant Radio. At a campaign stop in South Carolina on Sunday, U.S. President Joe Biden asked for a moment of silence for the fallen soldiers and vowed to respond. In a statement, the White House blamed Iran-backed groups for the attack. The Islamic resistance in Iraq, an umbrella organization of hardline Iran-backed militant groups, claimed attacks on three bases, including one on the Jordan-Syria border. It's the Drew Mariani Show on Relevant Radio. Hey, thanks for being here. Good to be talking with you, sharing a couple hours together again today. Thanks for, for joining me. I hope you can hang out. We'll pray the chaplet in about an hour for your needs. In my last hour today, I got uh, special guest, Dr. Sean O'Mara. We're going to take a look at the epidemic of not just chronic illness that's killing way too many too soon. But how about weight loss? How you doing? It's been a year. It's been a year. It's been a month. Can you believe this is the... <laughs> This is the last day of the month of January. A lot of people made New Year's resolutions to lose some weight, you know, lose some weight, lose some pounds. How did this? How's it going? Um, I saw. Well, I, I don't want to say who I saw. I saw a celebrity recently. Right, lost all this weight. I couldn't believe it. You know, my first first thought was, eh, Wagovi. It was epic, right? I mean, these celebrities are taking it. A lot of people are jumping on the, the weight loss drugs, and people are losing a lot of weight on it. And it makes you think, wow, could that help? 42% of Americans are obese. We're going to talk about it a little bit later. I want to look at Wagovi. I want to look at uh, Ozempic. I want to look at the side effects of it. I want to talk about weight loss and a whole lot more. So if you're saying, Drew, I fell off the wagon, I'm ready to restart. We'll get into that much more. So it's going to be a mixed bag today, but... Uh, Let's start with some news. Uh, we just heard some audio there from, from Reuters, uh, the White House's reaction to the uh, drone attacks in Jordan. Uh, the president today has decided how he will order the U.S. military to strike back at Iran. And, uh, of course, we have to remember the souls of those three servicemen who were killed in a drone strike at a very remote outpost in Jordan. And I think about that. You know, you send your son or your daughter off you know, to serve it's always a fear that war could erupt, but you never think they're going to get killed. And clearly that's, um, that was a great tragedy, but American troops, U S servicemen lost their lives. Okay. It was an attack on a U.S. base by another country. There will be retaliation on the part of the U S. Uh, some people want it right away. There's been no news of any strike right now. Um, Iran has heard the, the blustering here in the, the States saying, no, we'll choose a time and a place when we're ready. And they are threatening retaliation for any kind of action that we take. So things could get hot. Now, what will that be? I, I, I don't know. I don't know if you've been following the story a little or not. Here's a little more on the issue. Uh, an investigative piece from NBC on how this attack even happened in the first place. Listen. Questions over how a drone laden with explosives evaded defenses on this American base in Jordan and what the U.S. response should be. The family of 23-year-old specialist Brianna Alexandria Moffitt from Georgia, one of three killed on the base known as Tower 22, speaking to NBC News. We will like to know what happened and how, how could this happen. It's the first time American servicemen and women have been killed by what the U.S. says was an Iranian-backed militia since the war in Gaza began, flying low, possibly tricking the base's defences by flying in at the same time as an American drone, according to Pentagon officials. The service members' families now grieving. Yeah, say a prayer for them. 
and say a prayer for safety, say a prayer. And I, I say this every day, but I, I'm, it's part of my own prayer life right now. I mean, I'm praying for the, for safety over this country. Uh, I heard a report from the, um, gosh, I think it was the head of the FBI. I was testifying before, before Congress. I was in studio here getting ready for the show. This was maybe an hour or two ago. Um, and I, there's a bunch of TV monitors in my studio, and I have a couple different news feeds coming in that, that I can kind of tag into. And uh, he was talking about China and and the threat that they are now discovering that Chinese hackers have the ability to hack into our grid, but perhaps crippling, you know, our, our power grids and more. And I was talking to Maggie, my producer, about this before the program started. I'm like, do you have dry food? Do you have any supplies? You know, what about generators? I mean, if our power grid was to go down, and we talked about this with uh, the now deceased Dr. Peter Pry, what would happen if an EMP went off? Now, you know, there are certain laws for international warfare, and to take out and to affect a civilian population like that, you know, that that uh, I'm sure is outside the criteria of, of the way a war is supposed to be waged. Um, but, you know, if war gets underway, they want to drive us to our knees. And you know what? There's not a faster way to do that. I said to Maggie, there would be chaos, if you think about it. I mean, honestly. Okay, so power goes out. It's not just a couple hours. Let's say it's a couple days. You know, your lights aren't going on, right? You may not be able to have your well pump work if you have a well, so you're not getting your water. Uh, you may not get water if you live in a, a crowded a public area as all those stations go down. Hospitals will be overridden. What about your food? doesn't take long for that to spoil. If you have an electric stove, you can't cook it, right? And then I said, if it was, if it's prolonged, and I don't want to get too deep down this road. I don't want to go too far. But, you know, soon people are beginning to knock on your door. Do you got any water? Do you have any food? Or maybe even gangs gather together, groups of people who break into your home to take what you do have. I mean, it could get ugly really fast. So uh, pray for peace. You know, pray pray that we don't see war. I was thinking about it. I mean, think of how how many wars are going on right now. Russia, Ukraine. We got Hamas. We have Israel. We've got uh, Taiwan. China saying, "I'm going. We're going to reunite with Taiwan." Period. Uh, we would like to do it peacefully. If not, they're going to take it. So you can make a difference. I can't stress this enough. Please don't underestimate the power of your prayer. Maybe we should say one right now. Do you want to say a prayer right now for, for world peace? Do we want to invoke the mother of God? I think it's a great idea. But do it throughout the day. We'll pray the chaplet coming up in about 50 minutes, and we'll ask God for peace. Pray the rosary with Father Rocky at 7 o'clock. We'll pray for peace. Right? Pray when you receive the Eucharist. Pray when you pray your rosary. Pray when you spend time with the Lord. And God will hear these prayers. I This is the, the clarion call of the mother of God across the decades to, to people prior to wars. I think we're at that point again where things can get ugly, but we need we need to pray. Pray can prayer will change things. Not only change, you know, not only can, but it will change things. You know, Scripture, one Thessalonians, I think it's five seven, it tells us to pray unceasingly. Right? You do that, God honors it. Let's pray right now. We'll turn to the Mother of God and we'll ask her, the Queen of Peace, to intercede that war does not erupt in the Middle East or in any other part of the world, and that God will protect this country from degeneration, disaster, and from war, from disease. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Remember, most gracious Virgin Mary, and never was it known, that anyone who fled to your protection, who implored your help, or sought your intercession was left unaided. Inspired by this confidence, I fly unto you, O Virgin of virgins, my mother. To you I come, before you I stand, sinful and sorrowful. O Mother of the Word incarnate, despise not my petition, but in your mercy, hear and answer me. Amen. In the name of the 
Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. And it's been put on my heart. I mean, as I spend time with the Lord, as I pray, um, it's been put on my heart to bring this to you, you know, to ask you to pray. And, and you know, really during the chapel, I've got to make that a reoccurring intention. The world's a very divided place right now. Satan's active, not just on the international scene, but within the family. Tomorrow, we're going to talk about that in the show. We're going to talk about ruptured relationships within families. Because Satan, man, has got the family in his crosshairs. He's got the child in the womb in his crosshairs. He would love nothing more than to see war and destruction. It's his hallmark, you know. Over in the uh, Red Sea, let's talk about what's happening there, too. Uh, you know, there are separate attacks from what we saw from Iranian proxies, right, on our U.S. base. Um, in those shipping lanes, there's been an attack on shipping in the Red Sea where the Houthi rebels in Yemen— they keep attacking us. I, you know, I, I mentioned 163 attacks. I went home later that day. I heard 165. Last night, I heard different news agencies saying we've been attacked over 190 times. I mean, those are insane numbers. That's a big, that's the big middle finger to the U.S., right? And and they play this montage of, of what the administration's saying. What are you going to say to Iran? What are you going to say to Houthis? What are you going to say to our enemy? Don't. 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 I feel like I'm in third grade on the schoolyard, right? Don't. Uh, well, you know, they're saying to the don't, they're saying, well, we'll show you. How about 200 attacks, right? <laughs> don't what, right? Don't tell me not to attack you is what they're saying. You know, they don't care. Yesterday, a U.S. destroyer had to take out an anti-ship missile that the Houthis fired at it. The U.S. president reported um, Iran's U.S. ambassador saying this. He says, quote, the Islamic Republic would decisively respond to any attack on the country uh, and its interest and nationals under any pretext. And the response will be strong. That's what they're saying. But uh, Wall Street Journal's uh, reporting uh, today that there might be a deal in Gaza, you know, that uh, there might be a three-stage deal that would release hostages. Uh, it, it's, it'll begin with a six-week ceasefire. Uh, mediators have been at work on this truce. Uh, it's very complex. And uh, Hamas is apparently considering it. Here's a little bit more. This comes again from, from Reuters on what's now in the works. Hamas said on Tuesday it had received and was studying a new proposal for a ceasefire and the release of hostages in Gaza. Mediators provided the proposal to Hamas after talks with Israel in what appeared to be the most serious peace initiative for months. A senior Hamas official told Reuters the proposal involved a three-stage truce, during which the group would first release remaining civilians among hostages it captured on October 7th, then soldiers, and finally the bodies of hostages that were killed. The ceasefire proposal follows talks in Paris involving intelligence chiefs from Israel, the United States, and Egypt with the Prime Minister of Qatar. In a mark of the seriousness of the negotiations, Hamas chief Ismail Haniyeh said he was going to Cairo to discuss it, his first public trip there for more than a month. But Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu repeated his vow not to pull troops out of Gaza until total victory. I hear sayings about all kinds of deals, so I want to clarify. We will not end this war short of achieving all of its objectives. That means eliminating Hamas, returning all of our hostages, and ensuring that Gaza will no longer pose a threat to Israel. I think uh, Israel is serious as a heart attack about that. I don't care what anybody else in the international community says. 
that is uh, that's their focus. I think they're definitely going to go ahead and, and knock it out. You know, talks are taking place right now, though, in Paris. And U.S. negotiators says that the first phase, you know, is that Israel would actually stop all of its military operations in Gaza, including drone surveillance. I don't know if I would do that. I might agree with that. No drone surveillance. Six weeks while Hamas gathers hostages for release. They're also pumping seawater. Did you hear about that? Into these tunnels. It's like trying to drown a rat, I guess. They're just, they're pumping those. There's hundreds of miles of tunnels in that Gaza Strip. Um, the militants are going to set civilian hostages free, including the elderly, um, sick, and children, of course. And if it works, then the second phase would see Hamas letting female Israeli soldiers go, and then more humanitarian aid would be allowed onto the Strip. And then it would also guarantee the operation of hospitals and water services and bakeries. And then the third phase will be the toughest to negotiate. It would involve swapping a prisoner. So uh, let's pray it works. I'd like to see an end to this. I found it interesting. It began on the Feast of the Holy Rosary, this attack, October 7th. Uh, again, pray the rosary. For, for peace in that particular area. You might have saw the the footage. I don't know if you saw that yesterday where they went into a, a hospital dressed as uh, medical personnel and they took out three terrorists in that hospital. I just saw a news piece. I didn't get a chance to hear it all. They were saying that might violate international uh, the, the laws of international warfare, um, You know, going in as a medical personnel. So we'll, we'll keep our eyes on what's happening there. But the Middle East is a hotbed and... Um, we need prayer to disengage it. Here at our own home border, one final story for you here, and I, I do want to talk about something else that can really uh, impact your health here on the homeland. But House Republicans have passed impeach, impeachment charges against uh, Secretary Mayorkas. He's the head of Homeland Security. He's the Homeland Security Secretary. They passed these, uh, these charges out of committee, and the measure is now going to go to the full House. Uh, and they allege that he has failed to properly enforce the nation's immigration law. And uh, Mayorkas is, of course, being accused of uh, demonstrating a willful and systematic refusal to comply with the law and breaching a public trust. So tensions have been flaring during these impeachment hearings. Uh, let me give you a quick snapshot. This is a montage from ABC of the varying viewpoints of legislatures, legislators, and ultimately how they uh, they see the matter. Check this out. House Republicans moving one step closer to impeaching Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas over his handling of the border. We cannot allow this man to remain in office any longer. Not a shrivel of evidence of high crimes or misdemeanors. After a tense 15-hour hearing in the Homeland Security Committee. If the Congress does not impeach, what indeed is the remedy? I'd love to take it up. I'm, I'm going to legislation. Up. Republicans advancing two articles of impeachment against Mayorkas, accusing him of willfully and systemically refusing to enforce immigration laws and making false statements to Congress that the border is secure. He comes in here and he raises his hand and he swears to tell the truth. And then he lies when he says the border's secure. But Democrats argue there is no evidence of high crimes and misdemeanors. The sham impeachment of Secretary Mayorkas is a baseless political stunt by extreme mega Republicans. Uh, listen, listen to the language, right? Extreme MAGA Republicans. That's, that's all you ever hear here, right? Um, if it passes, by the way, just one final note, because I do want to change gears. Um, it, it's going to fail in the Senate. If it gets out of the House, it's not going anywhere, right? Uh, there are conservatives who aren't thrilled with it either. Guys like Jonathan Turley, who've been on our program here, and he's a regular commentator, I think, for Fox News. Brilliant legal mind. He says the fact is that impeachment is not for being a bad cabinet member, even a bad person. 
Uh, it's a very narrow standard. So I, I don't think anything's going to come from it, but um, maybe those MAGA Republicans, <laughs> maybe they're trying to make a point about the failure at the border. Hey, I don't know if you caught this either. I've been following the financial news. Just very quickly, I just saw a news report. The Fed has decided to hold rates for now. So that's um, some good news. I was hoping they would lower those interest rates. And they're open to the possibility of a rate change. But right now, they're going to keep interest rates unchanged. It's a cautious step. I think it reflects a very complex economic environment where um, we're trying to keep inflation in check and not go into a recession. So I'll continue to monitor that for you. We'll talk more about it later in the week with Peter Grandich. Hey, I want to talk to you about waiving the rights of medical experiments, in medical experiments. This is a bizarre story. Father Tapaholczyk, who was with me yesterday, is going to be stopping by to give me some insight on this. This is just a cautionary story, okay? I saw this. I almost didn't talk about it, but I do want you to to hear about it. Maybe think of what happened during World War II. You know, besides the defeat of the Nazis, um, was the change really in the outlook of medical experimentation? When, when Allied liberators got to those concentration camps, they found horrors. You know, not just the torture to death of people. They found the most horrific experiments being done on prisoners by guys like Dr. Mengele. Right, so. After the Nuremberg trials were done, the, the Nuremberg Code came out detailing points that make experiments on humans, you know, uh, you need an ethical standard. You can't just can't experiment on pregnant women and, and do these horrific things that he did. Um, and even though we've adapted that code, uh, it didn't always carry out. You had the Tuskegee experiments on syphilis and a bunch of other situations there. But one of the points of the code is that a person who agrees to the experiment has to be told of all of its details and has got to be able, has to have informed consent. consent. And the person has got to be told in terms that he or she can understand. And on top of that, the person has to be able to understand it and give valid consent. So you can't, for instance, experiment on somebody who's mentally handicapped or somebody who's not really comprehending what you're saying. Well, the FDA wants to tweak that. They issued a proposed rule that would waive informed consent for what they consider to be a minimal risk experiment. And I'm like, what the heck does that mean? You're going to experiment on me without informed consent? If it's minimal, what, well, how do you define minimal? Today, to unpack this for us is Father Tapa Holchak, senior ethicist at the National Catholic Bioethics Center. Check him out at his website, fathertad.com, or at the NCBC um, Center as well, the National Catholic Bioethics Center. And, and I think it's ncbc.org. Father, good to have you back. Good afternoon. Good to be with you, Drew. Thanks. Glad to see you be back with you in such short notice. Yeah, great conversation with you previously. Today, I thought of you. I said, we have to get him back again. Um, this is a little concerning to me. I don't want to make too big of a deal out of it. I know the FDA's got some guardrails I'm sure they're going to honor. But uh, let's talk informed consent and then saying, hey, we don't need informed consent if this is a minimal um, risk in the in the experiment on the person. So break that down for us. What are they saying and how how concerned should, should we be? Um, well, I think we should be concerned. I'm glad you're raising the issue. I think it's a, uh, it's something that really hasn't garnered a lot of attention, but I think it merits it. In bioethics, this principle of informed consent, it's pretty much right at the heart of things. And you started, you did the opener looking at the Nuremberg yeah. trials, and that's the perfect place to start. That's where you ask, you know, why did these things happen? Well, because there wasn't a sense of the dignity of each individual person. What was the greater good? The greater good was serving some, 
you know, Nazi agenda, some research agenda, some other agenda, but the individual person was sort of pushed to the side, taken out of the equation. And at Nuremberg, everybody was like, no, uh uh-uh, can't be that way. This is so critically central to everything. We need to have people giving consent to any procedures or research, especially research that would be done on them. And, you know, Drew, I think that to the extent that this sort of comes into play, I think it actually breaks the trust of the public a little bit further. And for this reason, I think it's counterproductive. It's one of these moves by bureaucrats that I think is a very, you know, badly advised, very poor decision on their part uh, and has a lot of its own risks, if you will, to the future. They're, they're doing it because they're saying, look, there are certain things that aren't too risky and we can get the information. And actually, if the person knows about the details of the experiment, then it's going to make the experiment not work right. But no, it's more important here that the consent be safeguarded. And there's probably another way to get that same information. Scientists are very creative. And we need to, you know, first hold the ethical lines uh, and not make this a kind of utilitarian uh, drive or thrust into the heart, really, of medical research. Yeah, my guest today is Father Tad Paholchek. If you want to join us, I only have him for a brief moment today, but you can get in. I'll open the phones for you at 888 Feel free to join the conversation. Um, this touches your life in some way. I'd love to hear from you. Let's talk about informed consent and how many details of an experiment uh, are supposed to be disclosed to a participant. I'm, I'm in the hospital or somebody I love is. How does this work? Well, it's supposed to be providing enough information that the person can understand the basics of the procedure in language that they understand, accessible language, not something that shoots over their head. And also gives a fair representation regarding anticipated risks, dangers, etc. Uh, so that the person can think it through and decide whether they want to do it. You know, you think about some of these new cancer treatments that are being developed. Yep. And they're, some of them are brand new and they really haven't been used except in animal studies, and you do at some point need to have people who volunteer to do this. And sometimes people who have very, very advanced cancer and they might only have, you know, a few weeks left to live, they make this decision. And, you know, when I have people ask me about that, I say, yes, you can consent. But remember, a lot of times these clinical trials are not going to really benefit you as much as they're going to benefit future generations of people who have the cancer, because you're probably going to be providing some information by participating in the study that will help others, but probably not yourself. It's rare that a brand new study actually helps any of the immediate participants. But in either case, you need consent in order for that to move forward. Otherwise, it's a kind of, you know, brutal experimentation on human beings and something that you know, is completely against any kind of reasonable code of ethics. Uh, let's take a call or two. I know we have a couple of minutes here. Frank is in Chicago. He's got a comment for you, Father. He'd like your response. Frank, good afternoon. Uh, good afternoon. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. You got it. Um, we've already seen a total breakdown in the deception in this with the COVID vaccine. Um, doctors were not informing consenting in regards to all the possible side effects with this. And this is just a further eroding 
of our inalienable rights um, as God-fearing people to control our own health care. And I really feel that this is a controlled a demonic pathway to get us to uh, be experimental human rats. And it's a shame. And people really need to understand this and really call their senators and put pressures on the FDA uh, and everyone else. Hey, thanks, Frank. Father, I'll let you respond. Yeah, thank you, Frank. I, I, I tend to agree with those comments. I think, you know, COVID sort of exposed the underbelly a bit here. And we're what what bothers me now so much about the whole COVID thing is that we haven't set up, for example, something like a 9-11 commission like we did back then to review how we handled the COVID. But I think you're right. Things were rushed and there was certain data that was not made available. And there were certain other data that actually did exist that showed certain occurrences, but it wasn't shared with the general public ahead of time. And that's a real concern because then, you know, you're, you're seeking to get consent. People are lining up to get vaccinated based on what they've heard. They believe it represents a more or less complete picture when in fact it didn't. Maybe just a quick example here uh, of this, that Pfizer Japan, uh, Japan at one point did some studies on these fat globules that hold the mRNA uh, vaccine. And they just tracked where do these fat globules go in a person's body? If you just inject the fat globules, well, it turned out that the highest concentration appeared in the ovaries and in the bone marrow. And this was known, but this was the only way this information was obtained was through a kind of freedom of information act. Uh, So they had to force it out of the hands of Pfizer Japan. And that's not how it should be. You know, if we're contemplating vaccinating large numbers of people, we need all the data on the table. We need informed consent. We need transparency. And I think we really do need something like a 9-11 commission here to look back and to acknowledge the mistakes and perhaps even to name some names. You know, regrettably, nobody wants to do that. That's well said. No, I agree. Father, I have less than a minute. I just final thought here because... I don't want to be conspiratorial, but could this rule change be used to, let's say, roll out an experimental drug in the future on the entire populace because the FDA thinks it's a minimal risk? I mean, that that might be a little extreme, but does it somehow crack the door for some sort of experimentation on the populace? Yeah, and Drew, I mean, you're right to say that this notion of what is minimal risk This is key, and you're not going to be able to make some kind of universal assessment like that, and that would apply to everybody in a study. That's why you want to go to each participant and say, hey, here's what we know. Do you want to be a participant or not? That's fair. That's reasonable. That's open. That's transparent. You got it. Well, Father, thank you for your time. I I really do appreciate you being here. So such a delight to talk to you. Uh, the the website yeah, for you. the National Catholic Bioethics Center is at ncbc.org. Did I get it right? Uh, almost. <laughs> ncbcenter.org. All right. Good. There you go. So throw the word center on it instead, or a really easy way to connect to Father Tad is just to go to his way, website. That's fathertad.com, right? Fathertad.com. You can check him Perfect. out. Perfect. Hey, Padre, we'll catch Thank up soon. So Keep up your great work, okay? Okay, you too, Drew. Till the next time. One of my favorites. Uh, It's bottom of the hour right now. I need to take a short pause. When we come back, well, you might want to stay tuned. Wait till you hear what's going on here now.
right? If that concerns you a little bit, the Biden administration may be threatening your Medicare Advantage plan. And I'll share with you what they may not be telling you. Stay with me. Insight and analysis right here. It's the Drew Mariani Show. Relevant Radio. Today I'm proud to announce that Medicare has selected the first 10 additional drugs for negotiation under the Inflation Reduction Act. 10 additional. Drugs that treat everything from heart failure, blood clots, diabetes, kidney disease, arthritis, blood cancers, Crohn's disease, and so much more. The Drew Mariani Show is on Relevant Radio. That was our Commander-in-Chief, the President of the United States, announcing the renegotiation of various drugs and treatments within Medicare. Good afternoon. This may affect you, may affect somebody you love. One of the things you have to deal with right now as you get older is health insurance, right? Your health begins to wane. Health insurance becomes really important. And if you're older, specifically Medicare, the taxpayer-funded plan that you've been paying into through your payroll tax ever since you started working, right? So as you get older, as if getting older wasn't hard enough really to deal with this, I'd be sorting through all this type of stuff, with Medicare options, the rules, the regulations. It's confusing, you know, and you only hope that what you decide is right for you. And it's going to fit your budget, especially if you retire. Uh, let me share with you a quick overview from Fox News about how rates are so expensive. And one of the arguments right now is because there is no market control with providers. Listen to this. It's emotional because it's those are skills that he needs. Carmen Peak is the mother of two autistic children who will no longer receive care at one of 10 autistic therapy providers to cut services or leave Colorado, all citing low Medicaid reimbursement rates and high inflation. In many cases, physician payment rates for Medicare and Medicaid have not kept up with inflation. Take federal Medicare physician rates. According to AMA research since 2001, they've dropped 26% below the cost of running a doctor's office. Experts, however, point to instances where reimbursements may actually be too high, particularly with some Medicare services and private insurance plans. It's not about Medicare rates being being stuck. It's because commercial rates are out of control because there's no market discipline um, when providers have monopolies. Congress and state lawmakers are looking at legislation to adjust rates and more closely tie physician pay to inflation. Medicare rates have contributed to the closing of air ambulance bases. It doesn't even come close to uh, properly, you know, reimbursing us. Primary care, nursing and geriatrics, among other specialties, are facing shortages, in part due to reimbursement rates and inflation. Wait times to see a doctor also impacted, especially for older people and patients with disabilities, as some physicians opt out of Medicare and Medicaid. Coming up in a minute, Eric Hargan is going to be joining me. He's the founder of the Hargan Group. It's a consulting firm specializing in healthcare issues. And if you got questions, we'll dive into them coming up in a quick minute. But I, I was thinking a little bit about this. You know, one of the options for you as you get older is something called Medicare Advantage. And it's a kind of a hybrid option where you've got a private insurer and then the government-run insurance program working together. And that offers a variety of plans, including higher or lower premiums, usually means lower out-of-pocket costs, but it also is very popular with about 51% of the people who right now, you know, those who are on Medicare choosing this kind of plan rather than the straight fee for, for Medicare. But the Biden administration, here's why I'm talking about it. Um, it wants to gut this. 
Last year, they touted more than a 2% growth rate in coverage, which sounds like an increase, but what they didn't tell you is the government was projecting a more than 10% increase in Medicare costs. So in other words, you actually lost, you actually, there's a loss in coverage, you know, not a gain. So uh, Drew Johnson is a senior fellow for the National Center for Public Policy. He pointed out that they, uh, Public Policy Research is the actual name of the group, but he he pointed out that the government cut 2,000 uh, diagnosis codes from coverage under the Medicare Advantage plans, and that means that your plan may not cover whatever particular disease you're dealing with anymore. So they have this 48-hour mandatory waiting period for seniors hoping to chat with agents or brokers to discuss the options. So let's talk about it right now. Eric Hargan uh, joins me, and it's great to have him. Again, you can check him out at the Hargan, that's H-A-R-G-A-N group, Dot com. Eric, thanks for your time today. Good afternoon. Uh, great to be here. Great. I hope I got all that right. What what what's the advantage of let's let's start with some basics like a Medicare Advantage plan. How, how's it different than the typical Medicare, you know, fee for service plan? Right. So Medicare Advantage is run by private insurers. So that's the big innovation that took place really over twenty years ago under President Bush was that we put in place a there had always people had always been trying to figure out whether this would work. Finally, we put plan in place. Congress put the plan in place that actually made it workable for private insurers to come in and actually offer plans that covered uh, seniors for their health care and were paid by the government. So then they started managing first, you know, obviously just a handful, but now it's over 50% of seniors choose the private plans over staying with traditional Medicare. They can always go to traditional Medicare. You can stay in traditional Medicare, but Medicare Advantage is just a set of plans offered by private insurance companies that seniors can choose if they want to. And they offer a lot of benefits like vision, dental, hearing, other benefits that traditional Medicare doesn't really cover. Uh, So you can get those um, uh, in your Medicare plan if you go with Medicare Advantage. So there's there's some people really that's, one of the main yeah. advantages, you can get things that traditional Medicare just doesn't cover. So how do these changes compare, let's say, the policies under previous administrations? Well, they're, what they're trying to do, it appears to be, is really cut back on some of the flexibilities in Medicare Advantage mm-hmm. and, and what's paid to the private insurers. There's always been a running debate over how much does it cost. Now, seniors are really voting with their feet. Like they want Medicare Advantage plans. Um, And there is always the possibility, you know, the government adjusts rates all the time, Mm -hmm. but if they adjust them too far down for Medicare Advantage, it means that the plans are really going to end up either are going to end up cutting benefits to the seniors um, for these things, which are often very popular and also not particularly expensive to offer for the plans. So um, it's something, you know, you don't normally see this. The government's really acting to kind of cut benefits to yeah. seniors in Medicare without really saying it. There's kind of saying, well, <laughs> you know, we're going we're gonna to readjust these things downward. It's going to result in that. But then people will think it's their private insured yeah, cutting, right. but it's really. So that, that's, that's really, that's, the, 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 well, that's really clever. Um, what's the, what are the potential long-term impacts then if this all happens uh, that these changes will have on, on health care for, for the elderly? How will, well, how will it impact what, them? What it, has, what it happens is that if 
if you go too far down this road, you end up with essentially gutting this very popular program that really now at this point, most seniors, and, and it's really increasing greatly over time. Really, what, what we saw when I was at, at Health and Human Services was that really the older seniors were not as comfortable mm-hmm. with switching over to you know, looking at all these different plans and choosing. So they stayed on traditional Medicare, whereas younger seniors disproportionately were going on to Medicare Advantage. So you're really going to end up with disincentives for seniors to take Medicare Advantage, yeah. to go back to traditional Medicare and go back to really government-directed yeah. Medicare. And, you know, you know, my own obvious opinion here is that the government doesn't really run things like goods and services as well as private uh, the private sector does, and that it's always an advantage to have, you know, lots of private industry, lots of competition, which we have mm-hmm. in this space, lots of different insurers competing for seniors, um, you know, business yeah. every, and that's, that's a really good way to run any sector of the economy yeah. rather than going back to really government direction. I agree. If you want to join the conversation, you got a question. Eric Hargan is my guest today. The number is 888 9149. Uh, I, I'm, I'm wondering, has there been any response at all from, from healthcare providers and maybe even insurers to these changes? How are they responding? Well, yeah. I mean, like, obviously, when you know you cut those, when you cut the rates that you're giving to the Medicare Advantage plans, they're going, they have to respond. Obviously, they're unhappy with it. You know, who isn't? But on, what they have to do is really start either reducing uh, benefits, that's most likely, increased premiums. You know, of course, that means you might lose out to another plan that's offering lower premiums. So it often means that you end up with gradually benefits being squeezed out of these plans, makes them less attractive to seniors who then have an incentive to go back to traditional Medicare and then back into kind of the arms of the government-directed plans. Um, And, you know, that, that means that there's no possibility of having capitated. Well, you know, in this, they sort of fix the amount that the, that the plans get yeah. more or less yeah. per senior. Instead, you go back to the model where the more you do, the more money you get paid. That's uh-huh. really what the government does. So there's always an incentive to just keep racking in more services, yeah. keep doing more. And, you know, the idea that you, you really can't, use that as a fundamental way. This is already the largest program in the federal government by far, right? And eventually it'll lead to national insolvency. The way to, I mean, my opinion, the way to do that, involve the private sector as much as you can, uh, use, take advantage of their efficiencies, their ability to really concentrate on the bottom line and provide goods and services and healthcare efficiently and well and responsive to consumer desires and needs. And that is not something that the, that the federal government has a lot of facility at doing. Yeah. I, my guest today, Eric Hargan, um, we're taking a look at uh, some critical health care issues, especially for the elderly. Uh, but as I sit back and I was reading about this earlier today, cutting out 2,000 diagnosis codes from coverage seems almost cruel. In some respects. Um, and then given that little more than half of the people who are on Medicare choose these plans, why would the Biden administration mess around with this stuff? I mean, what, what, is, is it an economic thing? Is, is it going broke? I mean, what are we looking at? Well, they have these these models that that they end up taking 
different parts of it that they think are not appropriate for them to cover. So they, they have a whole model that they use uh, in the space called HCC that it would take a long time to kind of walk through it, but they, they took some pretty important diagnoses out for elimination, acute kidney failure, angina, pectoris, a lot of things that are, that are out of there. And that's, you know, to do that means that there's not coverage for that anymore. That's And and, yeah, I mean, and these, these are, these can be pretty important things uh, to be covered in these, diagnosis. So it's, you know, over time, of course, that results in there being fewer, less coverage, lower payments, you know, you know, just less, less, less for the plans to do. Eric, let me do this because we have a few moments left. Let me sneak Michael in from St. Michael, Minnesota. Michael, good afternoon. You're on the air with Eric Hargan. Yes. Good afternoon, guys. So basically I need to make it short. Medicare, I believe is running out of money a lot like social security. So when you look at health insurance, personal or private health insurance, that also has increased in cost and benefits and and deductibles have increased since Obamacare has become law, let's say 10, 12 years now. So then you jump into what do social health care systems turn into? Like in Canada, they go to where the people who are there who are residents, if they have the money, they're going to go and pay for it direct out of pocket to get the care they need instead of waiting for a long time. So it becomes a personal expense. So my solution is what we do for our family is um, a health share ministry like Samaritan or something like that, where people are praying for you and helping you pay. And you're a personal pay, you pay out of pocket. And that way, everyone's helping each other and you're paying for what you need. And you're trying to be a good steward. You're trying to say, what does it cost for a childbirth at this hospital or that hospital? And you're coming up with an actual cost instead of going in with basically a blank check and thinking you have coverage. And then you get this huge deductible that you're paying at the end. And you're like, what is my insurance paying for? Thank you, Michael. I'm going to leave it at that. And I want to give you some final thoughts here, Eric, as well. So you heard his response, but final thoughts on where, where this all goes. Well, you know, see, there's a perfect example. There's somebody who has health sharing ministry. You know, the more options people have, the better. I agree. They they should have available to them health sharing ministries. They should have more plans, more choice, so that they can find what's best for them and their families. And sort of backdoor taking away benefits and options from people is not really the way to make the system work. The, The American system is based on choice and competition on people being able to have their own free choice about what they're doing and what they're what they're what they want to have to cover them. Yeah. And that has to be the route forward. It's awesome. more sensitivity to that, more personal control over these things. Okay. And so that's that that to me it's in healthcare and and pretty much everything. Else. Well Erica, I'm grateful for your time. Thank you so much for being with us today. I know people can follow you, get connected to you guys at the Hargangroup.com. Is that the best way to connect? Absolutely. I appreciate it. Eric Hargan is founder of the Hargan Group. It's a consultancy firm, specializes in healthcare, and there's been some big uh, news regarding Medicare Advantage, so you can get plugged into the latest. I need to take a short pause. I will be back with more. Stay with me. The Chaplet of Divine Mercy, live, coming up. You're listening to The Drew Mariani Show on Relevant Radio. Yeah, we'll pray in about eight minutes. So if you want to get in, 
And you can try to sneak in at 888-914-9149. I know the phone lines fill up pretty quickly. That's a great promo, Maggie. I was just listening to uh, PMAD's <laughs> promo. Patrick Snoop Madrid. Dog. Yeah, Snoop Dogg. <laughs> Little AI there. That's pretty cool. Yeah, Cyrus Cyrus has been clever in playing around with that lately. I texted That's him awesome. last night. I said, what is up with this new promo I just heard? And he just texted me back a gif of Snoop Dogg. <laughs> I love it. Is Snoop Dogg music bed there? Uh-huh. A little rap from him on, uh-huh. on Patrick Madrid. I call him P-Mad. I'm D-Mar. You know? <laughs> that sounds so horrible, doesn't it? You're really cool, Drew. Yeah, I am so cool. <laughs> I'm just so cool. <laughs> Oh my, my kids hate when I do that type of stuff. Yo, it's D-Mar here. I know. You know. It's like, Dad, stop it. I love when you walk around the studio and you go, you know what I mean? Yeah, and I'm, I mean? I'm like, okay, all right. Yeah, if you can see what happens behind the scenes here at the, uh, at the network before our mic's open. It's so funny. People think I'm so serious all the time, too. It's so funny because they'll say that to my wife. Or, oh, you know, your, your husband, man, he must be really serious. You know, it's like... <laughs> No, not really. Very serious. Uh, I deal with some very serious issues here, right? I mean, the the subjects that we have to deal with on a daily basis can be pretty heavy stuff, you know? But um, yeah, I like to have fun. I do. Yes. Love to have fun. And I often say to you, you know, you'd be surprised what's on my, uh, you know, my, my, my music playlist, you know, mm-hmm. it, it's wide and varied. What I watch is wide and varied. And I like that broad spectrum of, um, of, I don't know, of, of the world. I think there you need you to have it for balance, you personally. Do. I had heard that um, Taylor Swift, and that gets a lot of people's attention when you hear her name. I, I was watching, uh, of course, the NFL uh, games over the, the past weekends, the past two weekends, and they had record numbers. In fact, it was the Chiefs games that had record numbers. I was like, oh, I wonder, you know, I know why. You want to know why? Because Taylor Swift is going out with, you know, a Kansas City Chief player, right? And as a result of that, I think a lot of people are tuning in to see her, maybe to see them, maybe to root that game. I don't know. I saw a story regarding the power Taylor Swift, and she is a, uh, she's crazy. I mean, it, she's worth over a billion dollars. I think her last series of tours brought in that much money, but she's a, she's a pop culture phenom, and um, apparently she'll have an impact on the elections. You know, Maggie was sharing with me a story the other day about how the Biden administration is going after social media influencers and willing to pay them to change their perspective and support the Biden campaign. You know, if they were speaking out against Bidenomics, they would say, well, what would it take to, to change that? How much, how much would it cost? And people are throwing out numbers and they're actually putting it up online. Um, during the 2016 election cycle, there were a bunch of actors that put an ad urging people to vote against Trump. And then after that election, another group of, of actors got together uh, with another ad encouraging Republican members of the Electoral College to vote against him. Obviously, it failed, right? But Taylor Swift might have more influence than they did. There was a recent Newsweek poll. It found that 18% of respondents would more likely vote for whoever she endorses. If Taylor Smith, Smith, if Taylor Swift said, hey, vote for so-and-so, there's going to be a sizable chunk of voters who will take her advice as an entertainer and end up, you know, taking her political advice. MSNBC put together a um, a little collection of, of responses for conservative commentators on what they're calling the uh, Taylor Swift effect. Check this out. I kind of have a problem, though, with the hardcore 
Taylor Swift fans. This is a little bit what idolatry I think looks like, and you're not supposed to do that. In fact, if you look it up in the Bible, it's a sin. She's the perfect vehicle to go to those low propensity white liberal women. We can do this as well. We don't have a Taylor Swift on our side, but you know who we have? We have Kid Rock, we have Ted Nugent, we have influencers, right? We have all these people, John Voigt. We both said that we were cheering for the opposite team, the Ravens, to beat out the Chiefs just because we have had enough of Taylor Swift. <laughs> It's I, I. I bet a lot of people are rooting for the Chiefs, though, right? Because because of Taylor Swift, I'm sure there's a lot of people doing that. But a lot of people were doing the same thing. So in the NFL Super Bowl, are you rooting for the Chiefs, or you're going to root for the 49ers? Where does your allegiance lie? Yeah, Swifty, everything she touches turns to gold. Maggie, you were telling me about something else with, with her too. Well, yeah. Since since this is all happening, there's all these kind of comments on the internet that this is like some sort of like psyop. This is yeah. being orchestrated. She works for the government, right? And well, and so people have been like this clip I just found was from, I don't know, maybe five years ago at an awards ceremony where she's really concerned because the rights of her music has been bought and it, she like lists who this was done by right. and it turns out to be by George Soros Whoa. and the Carlisle group. I had the chance to purchase my music outright. My entire catalog was sold to Scooter Braun's Ithaca Holdings in a deal that I'm told was funded by the Soros family, 23 Capital, and the Carlisle Group. Wow. Interesting. It makes me think of the Beatles. Like, they didn't own their own collection. I think Michael Jackson went ahead and, and owned the Beatles collection, too. Isn't that crazy? It's, it's so bizarre weird. bizarre stuff as, a, as you create this stuff. That's how I always feel about intellectual property. It's like, you know, if I write my book, I want to own my book, right? If I create a piece of music or produce a film... I don't want somebody else owning it, but it's a very different world, the world of uh, of music. We only have a moment or two left, um, and I've got to take a quick break. We'll be back with the other side of the break, though, to pray the chaplet. I'm going to ask you to pray for six pro-lifers I just heard about today. They're, they were guilty of violating the FACE Act, uh, it, I think conspiracy against rights or something. I forget what all the charges were, but... Um, Paul Vaughn, he's a father of 11 children. He was arrested by the FBI under circumstances very similar to Mark Halk. And uh, five others face 11 years in prison. 11 years for walking into a Tennessee abortion clinic, sitting down to pray and to sing hymns. So let's pray for that. Thomas More Society will be representing, I think, at least Paul, if not all of them. But uh, they're there defending life. 11 years? I know drug, uh, you know, guys who sold drugs who got less time. 